Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I'm your host. Glad to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Chaz starts us off from New York. Hey, Chaz, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. No, I'm going to make your night because uh, I'm combining two of your uh, favorite hobbies right now. Okay. Linux and ham radio. Yay! That's awesome. You, uh, what yeah. do you got going on? Tell me about, tell me about that story. How did you, uh, how did you get pulled into the ham radio? You were always kind of into the Linux. Did it, did we convince you on the show? Did you just find extra time with COVID and decide why not talk to people all the way around the world for free? Actually, COVID has uh, canceled all of the, uh, all of the, uh, testing in my area for the foreseeable future, which is a real bummer because I was, I was a week away from taking my, uh, general. You know what, man? Let me let me let me share some encouragement with you. I've actually seen some discussions on this on some of the Facebook groups that exist for ham radio and some of the online forums. One of the things, one of the reasons that I very proudly announce that I'm a ham radio operator and one of the reasons that everybody that is a ham radio operator tends to talk to other ham radio operators is because we have a shared love of the evolution of technology. We like embracing new technology and pushing technology to its limits. And so believe me when I tell you, if there is ever a group on the, on, on, the, on the history of the planet that will immediately get around the idea of learning how to do these kinds of things remotely to include testing, it will be ham radio operators. It took my local club 72 hours to make a decision that they were going to go from doing uh, regular meetings to they were going to do them over the air. And so we have a, a, a net every Monday night, which I actually run. Um, and we went from that to the, the meetings, which are usually on Tuesdays. They're just going to do them over the air. And they tried it and first try went off without a hitch. No problems, right? Like that's what we're good at. We as ham radio operators, if we're good at nothing else, we are good at pushing technology to its limits and trying to find what we can do with those things. That's what the entire hobby is about. So I, I, I would imagine that if you can't take the test today, you're going to be able to take it very soon, either because this whole COVID thing is going to start to wind down or because ham radio operators are going to embrace technology and learn different ways to um, facilitate that testing. But be that as it may, what, uh, what do you have going on tonight? So, uh, Obviously, I've done my uh, reinstalls of 2004. I've got uh, Kubuntu on my main X270 and Zubuntu on my lighter uh, 11E. Okay. And uh, I used, uh, for 1804, I was using a software called Chirp mm, to yep. uh, program my Balfang uh, UV5X3 uh, or whatever the mm-hmm. five-band uh, nomenclature is. And... Uh, so obviously I do a complete reinstall whenever uh, two years rolls around, and I had to re-add the uh, repository for Chirp. And for some strange reason, uh, when I get to the sudo apt install chirp daily, it says that uh, 
they're unable to locate the package, which confuses me because if we come over to Launchpad, it looks like there was, uh, it looks like the repository was updated uh, for 2004 as uh, recently as uh, the 30th of April. So do I just need to find a new uh, programming software for No. No, you don't want to find you don't want to find a new programming software because Chirp is by far the the standard when it comes to to yeah not that's not just even true for Linux that is Chirp is the that is the the go to programming software for Windows and Mac um, so I I would not I wouldn't recommend that you do that I I I, I just went to their site this is by the way. Um, uh, Ch- uh, Chaz, this is why I have a dedicated computer specifically for ham radio is primarily because I don't want to deal with um, ha- these kinds of issues when when something new pops up, when a new operating system comes out, new version comes out. Um, you know, it, it, it takes me literally off the air while I wait to, to get some of these things done. Now, I just looked I looked up, I think, at what you're looking at. And it looks like. um I don't actually see from the PPA right from their site. I actually don't see a push or an update uh, since 2013. Um, so maybe I'm misreading that, or maybe you found a different peep. Oh no, yeah, you're right. So, well, yeah, successfully built, but the last time it was updated or pushed looks like it was back in 2013. So I, I tell you what, I'll do, uh, Chaz. I can reach out to them and just ask, uh, you know, if there's any updates to get that that to to 2004 and then if i'm wrong about it you know they'll obviously tell me and and perhaps you're seeing something i'm not the other thing we could do is now that you and i have had this discussion on the air there's probably a number of ham radio operators that also function as developers that may be able to look into this and go how do we get that to run on 2004 yeah that'd be great um uh, what's your call sign too just so uh kc0ske KC0SKE. All right. I'm KD2TMR, and uh, if I ever hear you on a repeater, I'll make sure I say hi. You bet. You bet. I appreciate you calling in. 73s. Open phones this hour, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. We'll go to our interactive mumble room where Pie Crash is hanging out. Hey, Pie Crash, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hello, Noah. Good afternoon. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, uh, good, self-isolating, as we should. Yep. Um, I got a question. I, I used to use uh, Bundarlist for all my to-do lists and yep. stuff like that. And, of course, the service is dead today or tomorrow will yep. be dead. And I wanted to move to something else. I found Todoist. Uh, yes. That's really cool service. But the problem is I'm still not owning my data. I mean, like, I wanted to... See if is there something like self-hosted or something like that, or just keep with Todoist. I don't know what's your um, recommendation. So okay, so let's uh, so let's back up a little bit. So first things first, if you have used Wunderlist, Wunderlist, which is a uh, which was a which is a pretty decent actually to-do list app, um, and I had used it for a while on Android. You got an email this last week or the week before that said, "Hey, they're shutting down, and you have until and they give you the date how long to get your data off of their service before they shut it down." By far, uh, bar none, if you want the best experience for a to-do app, that is Todoist, by far. Um, The level of integration that Todoist has and the capabilities that Todoist has um, is absolutely fantastic. And I'll be the first person to to tell you that the, the, 
where I actually learned about Todoist was from my wife. She was evaluating different to-do apps and said that this one takes the cake. And we've actually recommended it to clients because of the integration um, with other services and such. So if you want the best experience, being able to type, for example, um, 9 a.m. tomorrow, I have a meeting with so-and-so, and it will automatically figure out that 9 a.m. is the time, and tomorrow is the thing that it has to send you the reminder. and figures all that out. Uh, Todoist is the way to go. It also provides functionality for sync and so on and so forth. If you're looking for the best Todoist app, or to do a uh, task app, Todoist is it. Having said that, I'm with you. I would prefer to keep my data uh, to myself. What I've been using is own cloud tasks. Um, is it as featureful and powerful as Todoist? Absolutely not. Is there a maintenance overhead because you are hosting the service yourself? Absolutely. But if you want to keep your data on your own server, and to be fair, there are a couple of things that we have, email, to-do uh, to, to do lists, those kinds of things are so personal in nature. Man, if there was anything I wanted to get off the cloud, my to-do list would be one of them. Um, so I'd recommend you check out um, the, the I said own cloud, I'm sorry, NextCloud, uh, the tasks integration. And also what I found is once you get NextCloud set up, no matter what you start with, because I actually started with their, um, their uh, I forget what the name of it is, but uh, it is a NextCloud talk, their integration or their, um, their competitor to Slack. And I started with that, and I've just kind of been adding stuff over time. Oh, NextCloud can do this. Oh, NextCloud can do that. And it, it really is a, a personal cloud, a one-stop shop personal cloud. And I have to tell you, it used to be um, uh, like a half-day job to get NextCloud set up. No, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But there was a tremendous commitment that was required in order to get NextCloud set up. These days, it's literally a function of installing the Snap package, and everything just basically works. You want SSL, it's like, a, uh, it's like one additional command. So uh, that's what I would recommend if you want to get your data off the cloud. Okay, I will try it out. I probably find it. Uh, they have a Docker image, the Linux server IO guy, so I will try that probably. Sounds good. Let us know. Come back if you have any questions, all right? Okay, thank you. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. So I have been, if you've listened to the show for the past year or so, you might have picked up on this. I've, I've, I've mentioned little hints. I haven't really talked about it outright, but I'm kind of going through a data reorganization stage of my life. Uh, essentially, I decided it was time to, uh, I, I don't even remember what the, what the catalyst for this was. I think it was originally, we just wanted to get some movies for the kids. And I, the kids were looking for a movie and said, dad, we don't have this movie. I thought, I'm not rebuying really that. I already ripped that. And I looked, oh yeah, that's on this NAS or that NAS. And essentially what had happened is over the course of my life, every time I would purchase a new NAS or anytime I would build a new NAS, I'd take the old one out of production. I'd move the data that I needed immediately. And then as I needed stuff, I'd pull it back over. And then eventually I would just dump all the rest of the data that I wasn't using to drives and throw them in a Pelican case and, and label them for the date that I pulled them out. And, and that was my, uh, that was my system. <laughs> and it's just, that's how I stored extraneous data. And it's of course important, important stuff I had backed up. Um, but there really was no master plan. And at some point uh, late last year, early this year, my wife and I just kind of started looking around at all these cases. And I mean, there were a lot of them. I can't be any more honest than that. And she just said, you know, this is a problem. This has to change. And I said, all right. So we went through and I rebuilt a new NAS with 10 terabyte drives, which is the, as, as I explained on the, the episode at the time I did that, is the least expensive uh, 
drive that you can get the most storage on. Built out a new NAS um, and just started one by one going through cases and start pulling in data from most current to to, to least current. And I'm, I'm, I'm finally getting down to the very bottom. And one of the things that I came across was that I still have um, every paper I ever wrote in high school, every paper I ever wrote in college, every project I was ever assigned. And, and the thing about that is, is that data particularly useful to me right now? No. But there is something to be said about if you're going to do something in life, you may as well have access to it later on down the road. And I, I, I remember the moment that that hit me. I actually went on the air and said something to the effect of how many of you have downloaded a file and then deleted the file full and well knowing that as you're deleting the file, this is something that you're going to have to re-download again. Um, and so I've just been trying to organize these things. And and I found tremendous value in being able to go back and look and say, oh, here's the pictures from this time and here's the document that shows this. And I was able to piece together a couple of dates and it was just, it was a very encouraging experience. Well, I got down to my mini DV tape collection. They're home videos of my my kids. And the, the, my wedding when my wife and I got married and I, I had all of these, but I never look at them or show them to anybody because who has a mini DV player that you can play? And I actually had a, it was actually a split collection. Half of them were mini DV and half of them were, uh, some of them were mini DV. Some of them were high eight. Some of them were digitally. Stay with me. There's a point here. I started to, to look at how am I going to ingest all of this data into my computer? And one of the things that I've always been good at or try to be cognizant of is preserving things in the highest possible quality at the time. So back in 1998 or 1999 or whenever I recorded most of these, they I, I wanted to purchase the highest quality I could. And at the time, that was digital videotapes. And so I started to look for what tools were available to migrate all of this data into a, a regular video file that I could store on my NAS. And I came across DVGrab. Now, they say the blacksmith's children have no shoes. That is certainly the case at my house with IT, right? Because I'm so busy fixing and migrating data for other people. It's just something I've kind of kicked to the curb. And so as I've kind of gone through organizing my digital life, I decided that I wanted to move all of these tapes in. So I, I fired up DV grab, stuck a tape in a DV player and connected it to an I three, three, uh, four port, which it, it, by the way, if you're looking for a, a really great, uh, laptop to do this, the Dell D eight twenty, uh, they sell for like $35, $55 on eBay. Ha they, they have that, that little firewire port right built into the computer. So I just loaded it with Kubuntu and installed DV grab from the repo. Man, is that slick? You type DV grab, it dumps the videotape into a digital video file. And then you can open that up. You can use FFmpeg to transcode it to whatever it is you need. Absolutely fantastic and a great way to archive all of your footage. And so I combined that, of course, with ZFS and FreeNAS, which is what I'm using to store all of this with a really good backup strategy. And um, I, I, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very excited that these open source tools exist to pull data in. And so if you have, if you have any mini DV tapes, so they also work with analog tapes, by the way, I told you I had some high eight tapes. I took high eight tapes. I put them into a, um, a digital eight camcorder, which had a mini DV port. And the camcorder actually has a, um, actually has a, uh, I don't know what you would call it. I guess a digitizer that will take that, that analog video and turn it into digital video. And it, they actually have some special filtering inside of the camera that doesn't exist on some of the outboard uh, high eight players. And so I, I was able to get a really good copy of even those analog phones. They look really good for being, you know, in some, in some cases, almost 20 years old. 
DV Grab. It's in the repos. Check it out if you have any old videos. Get those things uh, into a modern file format that you can keep in, in archive forever. Again, one 450 No, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. George calls us from New York. Hey, George, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how's it going? I'm better than I deserve. What can I do for you? Well, two things. One, I just want to say, I know it's technically a different show. Um, I have to thank you for the for one, the Destination Linux episode where you talked to Jill about old tech, because you mentioned the Sony um, MO disc. Yeah, Magneto Optical. Optical disc. I was just, I was like, oh my god, oh my god, that was like, oh, such a nerdy thing, because I was like. That was just, I, I believe, uh, I'm probably going to get flamed for this if I'm wrong. I think that was the same disc from Mission Impossible that yes. they put the yes. knock list on. Yes, yes, it is. As he, go, <laughs> as he comes through, the, that is 100% accurate. As he comes, through the, uh, he comes through the ceiling, he comes down, and he puts it in his mouth. And, um, yeah, that, that, is, yeah, that was an MO disc. And, and it's funny, too, because it's, it's one of those things, I never know how far to go into retro tech because it's personally exceedingly interesting to me. I have a whole room at my office where I have uh, old computers and, and old drives and because I just like playing with them. I just think they're fun. Um, but, you know, and I show them to people or talk about them, people just, I can just watch people's eyes glaze over. And the, the thing is, back at that time, Zip, iOmega, really put a foot in SyQuest's nose just to say, hey, we're going to stomp you out. And they, they did some really dirty things with the driver to make it so that if you had an iOmega Zip drive or an iOmega Jazz drive, you wanted the 250 meg, um, that you couldn't use the SyQuest, which was actually a better drive because it was basically little hard disks inside of there. And then, of course, the Sony MO disks, which came uh, came around the same time, but were a slightly different format and for a slightly different purpose. But I still have I still have my Sony MO drive, drives as I have a bunch of MO disks, zip disks, SyQuest disks, and I still uh, I still play with them from time to time because they make me happy. You know, I, I found one, uh, an old zip drive at my uh, in my job, and I was like, oh, I just need to get a cable to connect it. But I was like, I really want to play with that. Yeah, the, I, so I the, kind of miss these. If I remember right, the SyQuest drive, um, the SyQuest drive was a parallel connection. The the iOmega drive just used regular USB, but the the MO drive actually is a SCSI interface, and so you have to have a PCI SCSI card. And I, I keep a, keep a couple of those kicking around too. Um, so that I can connect all of this old stuff back up. Yeah, no, that's, that was, I, I was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> 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 that, amazing. Mission Impossible 1, yeah, that was um, a good catch. Yeah, and I was, I was just I was like, oh, my God. I had, I'd look it up to make sure I was right. And I was like, okay, no, uh, I'm right. And also the uh, the behind-the-scenes episode, um, is there a possibility that you could actually do, like, a video of uh, your, your broadcast rig? Because, like, you were mentioning things, and I was just like, Okay, I know what that is. I know what that is. I don't know what that is. Which the the I one that, that I'm using, is. the one that I'm using for Ask Noah. Um, yes. I'll tell you what. You, you go check out. You go check out the YouTube uh, video after uh, after this airs, and uh, and you'll see it. I, I have a camera here. I just don't, I don't use it very much. But um, but basically, what it is is there's an IP mixer, and uh, this thing actually has no cables that runs into it. There's just oops. There's just a gigantic ether, not even gigantic. There's just a single Ethernet cable that's plugged into it. There's no microphones. No. Um, no headphones, nothing, but uh, everything operates in real time. And then, um, and then uh, the source, the the sources can just be assigned. So I I I can tap on the board and 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 scroll through and pick a source, and then that source becomes uh, 
becomes uh, active and I can use it. And so it, it's a very dynamic board. It was it was a very expensive system, but it does a lot for me and allows me to uh, to do a show on the fly without having to to pay attention to to a lot and so I can kind of do it by myself and that's that's always kind of important. You know, maybe we might we may end up introducing video back in. That was always kind of the plan and I just kind of never got around to it. So um but yeah if you check out the if you check out the YouTube video when when the when the episode gets posted you can see you can see a picture of it and then I'll just because we're this far into this, I'll just the rack uh is sits over to my left and the rack is what uh the rack is what has all of the other equipment. So this is what has like our broadcast delay and the network recorder. And we've got some remote codecs that allow us to get into the studio remotely and stuff like that. Of course, they can be anywhere in the building because they're all running over IP. They're not actually, again, they're not, nothing's actually plugged into the mixer. Um, It's all just audio over IP. That is, yeah, when you were talking about it, I was like, okay, this is, this is so cool. I totally nerd out on this, but I actually do have a question. Okay. Besides the nerding out part, um, it's dealing with like a Bluetooth. I have a Bluetooth headset. Um, if the exact model is this a Sony MDR 180N, mm-hmm. and I noticed that when I was using it, I was trying to use it for like Zoom chats and stuff like that. And I noticed that um, I can select it for like the audio, like for the headset, but or for the headphones, but I can't select it as a audio source to use as like the mic. Right. Um, but I did notice that when I switched it to HSP, the HSP mode, um, the quality gets crappier, <laughs> but the, it picks up the headset. Is there a way to yeah. get to connect the mic and still get the good quality? Um, you know, I'll be honest with you. Bluetooth headsets have a long way to go for real time audio. It, you know, you. They're okay. They're they're great for listening to music. They're actually pretty decent for doing. Um, like uh like phone calls type stuff but when you start getting into real time especially when you want it to sync up with video uh it gets very it gets pretty dicey and and i'd be lying to you if i told you that it was a particularly great experience on linux we've made a lot of progress in the past few years um, but we still have a long ways to go i have three different wireless um headsets that i use with my computer on a regular basis and by far the one that i've had the best luck with is my plantronics one um the other two, to include one Sony, I have uh, audio delay issues, audio lag issues, and so I, I, I don't really have a good answer for you. Um, the, 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 well, there's one other thing you can try. Um, DOS Geek actually recommended a Bluetooth adapter. Um, that works very, very well, and that actually solved my Bluetooth uh, delay issue on my home computer, um, but I, I I haven't actually gotten around to, to to purchasing one for my work once. I can't tell you if that would fix it on everything, but it's something you certainly you could try. All right. So what you're saying is a Bluetooth headset with I mean no, sorry a USB headset would probably be solve most of my problems. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, in I fact, mean, um, the uh, again going back to Plantronics, their USB headsets sound so good. And uh, Aventry, that's the one. So I'll put this in the show notes for you. Um, the uh, the the USB headsets that Plantronics have are of such high quality and do such a good job that uh, I I have a hard time going away from them. In fact, I've actually done a couple of shows. I've actually done broadcasts over them. Um, the audio is that good. Yeah, no, Plantronics. Yeah, that, that they've been in the game for a while. Like I've definitely heard of them. Like they're they're pretty good. They're the ones that make the right. communication headsets for the astronauts. <laughs> That's kind of a good well, qualification you know, to have on that. your CV, right? 
Yeah, that's pretty good. That's uh, I don't think anyone else can uh, can say that. All right. Yeah, I got to let you go, man, because question. we... Thanks. Yep, yep. I appreciate you calling. 855-450-NOAH. That's one 855 The email, live at asknoahshow.com. My next guest is Chris Moore. He's been on the show before. We asked him back because a new release of Freenas is coming out, and Chris is going to give us a skinny on... What is new in this release? There's a ton of new features. We have new encryption features. We heard us talk to Alan Jude a couple of weeks ago, and this data, this per data set encryption key is fascinating to me. So we have a little bit of noise on the line. We're going to try and work through that, um, and uh, and you'll just have to bear with us because Chris is working out of his home, and he has servers in his home, and so that's just something that we're going to have to, to, to deal with. So uh, without further ado, Chris Moore from IX Systems, welcome back into the program, sir. I appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me again, Noah. I really appreciate it. IX Systems is going through somewhat of a transition with FreeNAS. For those that aren't familiar, tell me what's changing with FreeNAS. Sure, sure. So you're alluding, of course, to the big name change announcement that we've made, and I'm sure uh, everyone's talking about. So uh, let me go through a little bit of the background on it. So everyone, of course, knows FreeNAS. Been around a long time. That name has been uh, with us since the early days of the invention of FreeNAS. It, kind of a play on FreeBSD as well, um, so showing a little bit of that legacy there. But as many people know, IX Systems, the company behind FreeNAS, also has this other product called a TrueNAS. So that's the commercial product, that's the big, the big system, that's what pays the bills, that's how we make sure all our engineers get paid and now uh, we can continue developing FreeNAS. So over the last, uh, we'll say, 10-ish years at this point, we've been maintaining both products. So you have a FreeNAS, you have a TrueNAS. Code-wise, they're very similar. Uh, FreeNAS, or excuse me, TrueNAS is more of a superset of FreeNAS. So it's the FreeNAS code plus a, a Git overlay, a couple Git overlays, adding some features, adding HA, um, adding some custom stuff for our hardware, of course, enclosure management, all, all those good things you need on the enterprise side. Well, that's been interesting on the engineering side and a bit of a challenge over the years because it means we have to almost duplicate all the work we do twice. I mean. We do a FreeNAS release. Okay, great. Now we have to go ahead and roll the TrueNAS release. Great. We have to test the exact same things all over again. You know, did the overlay or any of the code changes that came into a TrueNAS affect anything, break anything? You know, does it operate differently? Um, same thing with documentation. Oh, we have to go and document FreeNAS and, and document how that all works and then document TrueNAS. And it's still, you know, 90% the same software at the end of the day. I mean, creating a pool is identical on both, but it just required two sets of uh, operations for each product, and, and, you know, they tend to lag, uh, TrueNAS lagged a little bit behind the FreeNAS, which is a little bit more bleeding edge. So um, in recent years, that's something we've uh, just, we've been aware has been a challenge for us as a company. It's really difficult to have that kind of split brain syndrome where it's like two of the almost the exact same thing, and you're having to constantly qualify, oh, I'm talking about TrueNAS here. Oh, I'm talking about FreeNAS 9.3, not TrueNAS. I mean, it can be really confusing, especially now that TrueNAS has grown and IX has grown, and we have a lot of customers, TrueNAS customers, who run both. So the conversation's constantly, oh, you're using a FreeNAS in your environment and you're using that TrueNAS, okay? Which version? That's the FreeNAS version, okay? How about the TrueNAS version, et cetera? So uh, it's been apparent to us we've needed to unify for quite some time now, and, uh, you know, couple months, well, we decided a few months back, a lot of conversation about it, all the details involved therein, and then uh, we just made the announcement not too long ago that you're referring to. What are the code chain, prior to the name change, what were the code differences between FreeNAS and TrueNAS? So on... 
FreeNAS and TrueNAS, it's the same OS, so at the end of the day, you still have the same FreeBSD base under it. We might compile different drivers in on the TrueNAS side to support some of our hardware. Um, we may ship with some different software uh, ports and packages on the TrueNAS side to support some uh, different enterprise-y things, like our closure management's a good example. Um, of course, we have HA in TrueNAS. For those who don't know, TrueNAS comes in a uh, dual controller variety, so you can fail over and have high availability within one chassis. So a lot of code differences there to support that. There's a lot of things that just sound simple, like, oh yeah, sure, we'll just make it HA, but that has to touch a lot of things in the, in the core middleware of FreeNAS, TrueNAS, if you will. I mean, everything has to be accounted for, even re you know, bringing up Samba on the passive controller. Okay, got to bring it back to directory, got to do this, got to do that. There's a lot of things that have to account for that HA component, and that's really critical and vital to our enterprise product. Um, aside from that, there, there's been other things, uh, support for fiber channel being one. Um, we have a lot of tunings and special tweaks for our own hardware because, again, we built the hardware, we performance tested it, we can just dial it in to get you the best performance and best bang for your buck. And uh, some other visual things as well. Proactive support was a big uh, section of code as well. One of the things TrueNAS does is it has the ability to reach out to us at IX Systems uh, if you're in support and it'll phone home basically and tell us when a drive's about to fail or if there's been an alert on the system so we can proactively reach out to the contact of the company and say, hey, we're gonna ship you a new drive. You need to go pop that in the system or have remote hands do it. So uh, yeah, mostly uh, things of that nature. Is that phoning home feature that, that, that calls and, and allows you to give customers those alerts, is that something that has to be set up or does that come, uh, does that come enabled by default when you purchase a TrueNAS product? It's, a, it's something you turn on during the setup process. So if you have a support contract, a gold contract with us, most people are going to opt for that. Not everyone does. Obviously, we have a lot of TrueNAS in secure environments. They're air gaps, so they can't use a feature like that, which is fine. But uh, a lot of customers opt for that because they just want that kind of white glove treatment where they know that we're monitoring the system as well and making sure that it's going to stay healthy for them. Are there any other big changes that are coming out with the, with the next release of FreeNAS and TrueNAS? Obviously, there's probably a ton of attention that is being focused on unifying these two products, but what are some of the new features that are coming out? Sure. So let's talk about 12. So that's going to be the first release of the new unified image, what we're calling TrueNAS Core and TrueNAS Enterprise. So TrueNAS Core, of course, is uh, FreeNAS in every, every way, shape, and form. Uh, one common thing, and I'm just going to address it right now, is we've heard a little bit of, oh, they're taking it and calling it TrueNAS Core, so it's going to lose functionality or, or, or similar concern. Well, let me just assure everyone that's not the case here at all. Everything you do today on FreeNAS, you can do on TrueNAS Core, and more actually. If anything, we've open sourced more, more of the source code by putting some of the enterprise bits back into what is or what was FreeNAS. So TrueNAS Core 12, uh, let's go over some of the big things that are coming, and probably the biggest one people are, are aware of is the uh, new OpenZFS work we've done. So going back a little bit here, so ZFS on FreeBSD up till now has lagged a little bit behind OpenZFS, or not OpenZFS, ZFS on Linux in that case. Uh, and then OpenZFS, of course, followed the Alumos branch. Well, we, IX undertook about a year, year and a half ago, a big effort to basically bring FreeBSD support into the ZFS on Linux mainstream repository. That, you know, one thing led to another, lots of stuff happened, and what ended up uh, ultimately coming out of that is they ended up uh, converting ZFS on Linux and just calling it OpenZFS now. So that is the true upstream source of truth, and it, now FreeBSD is the same first-class citizen that uh, Linux was with ZFS on Linux. 
some of the features that we're going to be exposing on the TrueNAS core side, you know, the one I'm probably most excited for is uh, native encryption. That's something we've had a lot of people who've wanted for quite a while now. Um, historically in FreeNAS, the way you did crypto was uh, you'd use Jelly encryption, which is at the drive layer. So you did that underneath your Z pool, which is great, you know, for encryption at rest. If you need to go chuck a drive in the trash or you know, ship it, great, good, good encryption for that. Where it didn't really help you is when you needed to do things like replication. You know, that was always interesting because at that layer you're unencrypted and you're sending, you know, just your unencrypted data set across the wire, which hopefully is over SSH, so it's encrypted in transit, but then you've got to trust the remote system as well. Well, having native crypto in ZFS is a lot more interesting if you're in that situation where you want to lock specific data sets with specific encryption keys, if you'd like to be able to replicate to environments that you may not particularly trust or have full control over, you can now do that and not actually send the replication key to the remote side. So you can send the, re the encrypted stream, receive the encrypted stream, and never once have to unlock it on the remote, which is potentially very interesting. Lots of neat stuff you can do. Plus, you don't want the penalty of always having to encrypt the whole pool. There's a lot of people who want a data set encrypted but don't want to have the whole pool encrypted because some's private, some's not. So uh, that's potentially a very interesting feature. Um, another one that we're, we're calling fusion pools is an interesting feature. So let me explain what that means. So that's kind of the marketing term we at IX have come up with for uh, special allocation classes in ZFS, which when I say that doesn't mean a lot to many people. Are like, special allocation? What? What does that mean? So basically what they've done is in ZFS, in the new OpenZFS we're about to include, you have the ability to create a VDEV um, that's dedicated to metadata uh, information or small block I.O. Uh, dedupe tables can also go on there. So where that would be interesting is, say you have a pool and it's full of spinning disks, but you have um, a couple SSDs, you know, NVMe, whatever. You can go ahead and basically come up with kind of a best of both worlds scenario where you can now put all the metadata on the flash or on the really fast media, and that helps improve just DFS performance overall. Your, your bigger blocks still end up on the spinning media, but uh, we've accelerated everything else. So. That's a really potentially interesting thing as well. Um, and there's just been many years of tweaks and fixes, and we've seen some performance wins as well on the ZFS on Linux side, and we'll be getting all those in TrueNAS Core. So lots of goodies coming uh, coming on that side of the table. Let's talk a little bit more about the native encryption. So my understanding is this will allow you to essentially pair a separate key per data set. Is that correct? Correct. So um, for those who are FreeNAS users today, when you go to Core, you know in your storage page where you can go and monitor your pool, create, delete data sets, you'll have some new options. When, so you create your pool the way you normally do, great. But when you go to create a data set, you can now have an encryption option where you can click and say, I'd like to enable encryption, put in a passphrase or key, and turn that on for just that one data set. You can also have sub-data sets inherit that parent's encryption as well, or potentially not, or use a different set of keys. So there's lots of ways to nest and do some really neat things and, and you know, manage your setup the exact way you want it. How difficult is it to load and unload the keys dynamically? Is it something that has to be done by a system administrator as kind of a, you know, they, when they turn the system on, they go ahead and enable the encryption for that, or for that, uh, that pool and, and then it's unlocked and everybody's using it? Or is it, is it designed to be used such that um, maybe I have a law office, and the law office has a separate case, and so they can use a separate data set for each case, which would allow them to then destroy the key and thus, mm -hmm. quote-unquote, erase the data uh, in the event that they were legally required to do so. Is it designed for that kind of dynamic use, yeah. or is it really kind of designed to be set up and left? No, no, absolutely. And so 
just to be clear, when you reboot the system or you know, power on, power off, whatever, it's going to go ahead and prompt you, kind of the way Jelly does today, when you want to go ahead and unlock those volumes. So, um, and you can manage them a few different ways. But in the case you're describing, I use different keys, one for different sets of customer data or different you know, legal clients. You can basically destroy the data set, and as long as you haven't exposed that key anywhere, you can trust that it's basically been securely erased. So that's definitely supported. Another feature we've done, now this is more on the enterprise side, is we're adding KMIP support, which is a key management. So that's going to allow you to plug into, if you're a business and have a KMIP server, we can actually have TrueNAS reach out, talk to the KMIP server, and request keys from there so you get the full auditing. So you can monitor who's requesting what and when. So there, there's some other neat things we can do on the enterprise side. But for core users, yeah, it's, it's going to look and feel very similar to existing encryption except done on a per data set level. Is it possible to store the key outside of Freenas? Let's say, for example, that you say to yourself, self, I trust for the most part my passphrase to keep the key secure, but at the same time, since I'm only using this data set once in a great moon, I would really like to keep the key, the private key for the data set on a flash drive somewhere and only connect it when I need it. Is that something that can be done? Yeah, you absolutely will want to do that. You'll get prompted to go ahead and back up those keys when you create them. So yeah, I would take good caution with those, keep them as secure as you need to but that's absolutely something you could probably do or want to do. They can be backed up to a flash drive. Is it possible to erase them off of the FreeNAS box itself so that without that flash drive present, it is not possible to decrypt the data? Is that a possibility? Uh, yes. I'll have to go double-check the implementation as we get a little closer here. You, I know deleting the data set is going to wipe the key. I think there's a way to rekey it as well, which will wipe the old key, but I will need to double-check on how that is implemented, how far we've exposed that into the UI. There's obviously a lot of stuff under the hood if you want to go play at the ZFS uh, at the command prompt and go a little further. Have you ever, uh, have you looked into the, the, the possibility of tying this to any sort of two-factor authentication, perhaps like the YubiKey or the Nitro key, the ability to, uh, obviously that's not obviously planned for this release, but is it something sure. that you guys have considered down the road to, to where maybe when I go to unlock a data set, perhaps I have to have a, a second-factor authentication before it will allow me to decrypt that data? Yeah. Absolutely. That's something we would love to add. So we're kind of we're skirting that with 12.0. I didn't mention it, but we are adding Google two-factor authentication support to logging into the user interface. So oh. that's kind of our first foray into bringing that two-factor auth in. But over time, we expect, you know, again, things like that may come up where we want to add two-factor auth to specific sections within the UI as well. That's fantastic. So this is something that's mm -hmm. actively on the roadmap then? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Again, 12.0, we've already added the two-factor auth, so you can turn it on, use your Google Authenticator, and get those one-time passcodes to log into the UI. Of course, once you get in, you can do everything. So right. over time, we'll start making that more fine-grained. How? Let me ask you this, Chris. From just a general um, div, uh, user interface standpoint, do you design the FreeNAS UI for system administrators only to log in, or are there some valid uses to have some users with access to that web UI? Typically, it's designed for the system. Then. I, there's not a lot of things you want just your regular consumers doing in there, unless you want them provisioning data sets or making their own shares. That's not typically something we see people do in the, in the real world. Usually, your system man is going to be the one responsible for that. So. Now, to go along with that, we have the companion product. That's True Command. True Command starts dipping its toe into where you're going here, which is more of that RBAC-type solution where True Command allows you to say, okay, user, you can log into True Command, and we have given you certain sets of permissions to be able to see or, or have read-write access to certain true NASs or read-only to monitor. 
um, that's that's where we're going in that true command product to get to that place where you're talking about where each user can log in and do certain things. The reason I ask Chris is as I think about how I would go about implementing this in a practical standpoint, if I'm setting it up for a law office or whatever, I could see a lot of mm -hmm. users really wanting to take advantage of the fact that data can be encrypted and decrypted on the fly. Of course, mm -hmm. they're not going to want to, and their IT administrator's not going to want them to funnel through those requests every time they want a data set encrypted or decrypted. So I guess I just, is there maybe, is the, is the, is the general consensus at IX that you want to move towards a path of maybe doing this, uh, you know, like you say, with a, with a third-party solution or, a, or second solution rather yeah. than just the default web UI, or is the idea to eventually build the web UI for users? Yeah, the idea is eventually to build the web UI for users. At the moment, we're focusing that on the true command side because it is built to take advantage of that RBAC uh, model already and do it at a multi-system level. Because what we found is people don't necessarily want that just on one TrueNAS. They want to do it on a single pane of glass and say, I'd like to set a policy for three TrueNASs or five TrueNASs or whatever and not have to you know, individually administrate each one. So that's the direction we're going on true command. Now, back to the original question you posed, there's a full set of APIs. Matter of fact, everything you can do in the UI in 12.0 and actually in 11.3 as well can be done via the API. So if you wanted to uh, write a one-time script that the user could run, which uh, unlocks a data set, that's something totally doable. Uh, do that in ah. a couple lines of Python or even with a curl command if you wanted to use the REST API. Right. Very easy. So you can definitely give users the ability to do things. As a matter of fact, we're even adding uh, API keys into 12 as well. So you'll be able to go and issue API keys from the UI and then give that to the user so you're not necessarily giving them the root password to the box. This is really sounding like a fantastic release. I know that... Um in the past, there have there have been some times where we've said hold off and wait to upgrade a little bit until things have kind of smoothed out. How are you feeling for the twelve uh, for the twelve release? Is it something that you encourage people to go ahead and upgrade right away? Is it something that hey, there are a couple of changes since we are migrating uh, to this FreeNAS core? What does the upgrade path look like? So the upgrade path can be pretty straightforward. If you've done a, an eleven point two to eleven three update, it's going to look and feel very similar. I'm actually, uh, you know, and I shouldn't say this, but I'm a little surprised at how stable it has been. It's still just in the nightly phase right now, which is typically the Wild West on the development side. But honestly, we've been working on this for so long now. We started the 12.0 development cycle uh, over a year ago. Wow. So things like the OpenVFS integration, that has been beaten up and, and really uh, tested in the nightly for quite some time now internally at IX. We have a couple hundred users running it nightly on their systems out in the wild as well. And so far, the ZFS side has been the least amount of drama. It's the most just the new features that we're adding and, you know, fixing the little bugs here and there in the UI as we implemented those. But uh, ZFS, you gotta got to give it to that team. It's rock solid. So once the porting work was done, it was brought over, it's been really consistent. And, you know, in the early days, a few kernel panics to fix here and there. But once we got through those, uh, those first couple months, it's gotten better and better. And uh, one other thing I do want to mention on the, the 12 side, speaking of ZFS, uh, a big feature, which I don't think a lot of people are aware of, that we've been working to bring to 12, is something called asynchronous copy on write. Um, this is designed to greatly improve the IOPS possible out of a uh, RAID-Z VDEV, RAID-Z1, RAID-Z2, etc. So uh, that can make it more attractive where you're starting to use more of the IOPS of all the drives together and not be limited by the IOPS of a single drive. So it's able to asynchronously go and write blocks. And, uh, I'm not one of the OS guys who developed it. We have a, a team of guys who've been working on that, and they've done a fantastic job. We're not ready to quite publish all the performance numbers on it yet. We're still uh, tweaking it and tuning it, 
in the labs right now, but uh, very interesting uh, numbers we're seeing out of it so far. Some of the questions that I get when I recommend that people check out Freenas is how many drives do you recommend the average person or business start with? They don't have a Freenas server. They're going to set something up on their own. They're going to repurpose a computer. How many drives should they start with, Chris? Oh, gosh. Well, I guess it really depends on your use case and what you're doing. I mean, I've seen see people start with OneDrive, which obviously you're not getting the redundancy uh, that uh, ZFS could provide you. Um, some people start with two and just do a mirrored pair. That's perfectly valid. If you don't need a lot of performance and you just have an old system and you want to throw a pair of uh, two or four terabytes in there and at least get the benefits of some redundancy, fantastic. Uh, typically what I see is a lot of people, though, tend to build fours, eights, you know, kind of stick around those numbers for the first systems. And then obviously when you get in the enterprise side, you can start getting into hundreds potentially. But uh, it's not uncommon to see a lot of RAID Z2s that are eight wide for example, or uh, RAID Z1 that's four wide, although a lot of people now shy away from Z1s, but uh, you know, th- those are some of the more common numbers we see. If you were going uh, with RAID Z2, is there, is there a minimum amount of drives that you would say, here's what you really want to take full advantage of, of RAID Z2? Obviously, there's a, is it, I think the, the minimum is three, right? It is. I, I would say you start at five. That's my recommendation. Got it. There's different things. You know, again, Google it, and there's lots of different opinions on which ones are best to start with. Um, and you can go through the holy wars that people are sure. which reasons why. But you know, sometimes you just got to work with what you have. You know, I'm a home user too, and I I tinker, so I would start with a minimum of five if I'm going to do a RAID Z2. Just to, got it. To get the benefit. Oh, that's great. Chris, how about virtualizing FreeNAS? I know in this day and age, it's virtualize all the things, and there's a rumor going around that you can't virtualize FreeNAS, and of course, that isn't entirely true. Talk about that. Yeah, it's you know definitely one of the best things about ZFS is on metal. That's where it really shines. It's talking to the hardware directly. But that being said, we have tons of people who virtualize FreeNAS. It's it's not uncommon by any by any stretch. Uh, matter of fact, one of the top place, top things we see in our metrics is people running FreeNAS inside of VMware. Um, you know, there's some tips and tricks to doing it properly, making sure you pass through devices directly so you get the benefits of ZFS. So, yeah, I recommend you do some reading up on it before you just go and, you know, click buttons and deploy a, a VM. But, yeah, it can absolutely be done, and we have people doing it all over. Chris, given the COVID-19 thing that has taken over the world, we have more and more people working from home, and these people are road warriors and trying to do their work uh, remotely. What changes, if any, does FreeNAS TrueNAS have in store for people that are doing their work remotely? So one interesting thing is over many years now, we've seen a lot of people asking for or doing a lot of ad hoc ways to uh, put FreeNAS or TrueNAS on a VPN. Open VPNs, uh, obviously the de facto one that most people use. But starting in 12, we've uh, actually brought that into the uh, platform natively. So via the UI now, we'll have the support where you can go and run Open VPN either as a server or as a client mode, and use it to connect into your Open VPN network. That's something we've had a ton of requests for over years now, and uh, we're really excited to make that happen because it just makes it easier. Now you don't have to go and set up or follow an ad hoc set of scripts or have your own infrastructure. You can just, with a few clicks in the UI, go ahead and either deploy your your own OpenVPN server, host it right on the TrueNAS core image yourself, um, or if you already have the infrastructure, just connect it in. So that's a big win for people, especially with everyone being remote. I know we're all using VPNs uh, constantly now. 
obviously these are the kind of things that people want to see integrated because it makes it easy for them to get these services up and running. But I'll just ask, as a best practice, what do you recommend, Chris? Do you recommend that users, uh, if they're going to be primarily remotely accessing a file system, would you say that the the best practice would be to remote VPN right into the file server? Or would you recommend that you run a separate open VPN instance on a separate box for um, from compartmentalization and then access it the FreeNAS over the local network through that VPN? Sure, sure. So there's two ways of looking at this. If you can compartmentalize it, if you have your own infrastructure, most businesses already do. They're running that on their switches or routers. They have VPN baked in and through different infrastructure. Great, use it. Yeah, and that's what a lot of people do. But a lot of people run, you know, TrueNAS, FreeNAS at home, and maybe they don't have that extra infrastructure. They don't have the luxury, or, and we've seen more of this, people taking TrueNAS out on the road. Uh, we've had some crazy, uh, crazy scenarios we've seen of people actually having uh, TrueNAS boxes out in the field doing things like video recording, where they maybe don't have all the luxury of all the extra infrastructure. So being able to do it natively on the file server is, a, is an important feature. Chris, what new features have been introduced into FreeNAS that maybe allow people to give a little bit more granular control over where and how people can store data? I mean, I we set up a, a FreeNAS box that had, I think, 24 terabytes, something like that on it, and we found out that there was an employee in there that was storing a bunch of movies on there. Um, is there any way to lock that down maybe a little bit? Did you get plexed? That's what it sounds like. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, that's something we've had a lot of requests for over the years. Um, the ability to do ZFS-based user and group quotas. So that is something we have added to TrueNAS Core to 12.0. You're going to be able to set that now natively in the UI. You've always had some ability to do that at the command prompt. Um, there's also quotas you could set on data sets and Zvols, but not necessarily at the user group level. So this is the first time we've exposed that officially, which again, there are going to be some cases where you just really want to enforce that at a per user or per group basis. So uh, that's going to be important to a lot of folks. Chris, anything else people should know about FreeNAS Core 12.0 that comes out? uh, When does it come out? So we're just entering our internal alpha cycle right now. So that's our quality team is going through and kicking the tires, testing all the new functionality. We're looking at probably 30 days Uh, to go through those cycles, and then we'll go with a uh, public beta. Beta, I don't have a date on it until we get through the internal alphas, but we're looking at probably mid to end of May, maybe June-ish, just depending on on how many things we end up having to fix that we find internally. But uh, it's definitely around the corner. We really pushed hard. I know 11.3 is still fresh. A lot of people haven't even upgraded that yet. But we really wanted to to speed things up this time around, you know, having a 12.0, 12.0, the FreeBSD base there is important for us as well. A lot of new hardware is supported. That behaves better with Ryzen, for example. Um, so yeah, there, there's reasons to get that out in the wild as soon as possible, and we're working hard to make that happen. Chris Moore, he is the VP of Engineering at IX Systems. FreeNAS, the product, turning into FreeNAS Core along with TrueNAS. You can find more at FreeNAS.org. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the program and explain these exciting new changes and some of these great new encryption features that are coming out. This is really exciting. We'll get you back on the program real soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Noah. Anytime. Again, open phone lines this hour, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Nathan writes in and says, I just want to start uh, with, I've been listening to you for years, and unfortunately, I've made a bad mistake. Not with listening to you, but with some networks and backups. I have some questions over some recently purchased gear I was I I purchased, as well as some gear that I was given 
to me along with moving forward with what I currently have. So just a quick breakdown. I had a Western Digital MyCloud and I was transferring photos from it. Moving, not copying. And we had an electrical storm in the middle of a transfer. And all I can explain is that upon trying to get the photos back, I have half of the directories and half of the photos in those directories. And you can probably guess when I got the MyCloud, it was set up as a RAID 0 and it was I was not learning about this until later. I was given a Synology DS918 Plus at a huge savings, and I know you're an advocate for building your own server, which I have built my own computers and was planning on doing, but then this all happened and it fell in my lap, and I have some questions about the best way to move forward with the NAS and my storage. So um, let's start with this. Uh, first of all, there is the, the, the backup solution and the storage solution that you understand is the one that you should use. So if you understand how a how a Western Digital Michael, if that makes sense to you in the moment, say, hey, I understand how I can plug this thing in, my data's on this thing, it's on this one drive. That is the, I don't, no matter what I've ever said in the past, that is the best solution. You should always use technology that you are comfortable with and you understand, okay? So you've done nothing wrong because you were using what you understood. Now, are there better, more, uh, are there better ways to, to make sure that you don't lose your data in the future? Absolutely. And by the way, your data's not gone. I'm going to tell you how to get back. So, when we store data on a drive, there really is no way to delete data off of a disk. The, the concept of deleting data is something that humans have sort of invented and mimicked because it makes us feel good to think that we can take something off and we put something on. But the truth is, once you've written data, it's there basically forever until it's overwritten. And so if you have not written any new data to your uh, Western Digital Cloud, and I would hope that any you've done a simple Google search would tell you that uh, the first thing you should do if you have a concern about data recovery is not write anything else to the drive. The truth is, the, what a move is doing is it's marking those files for uh, as that space as being able to writ to be able to be written to again, and then it simply removes them from the table of contents. And it's it's actually trivial to get that back. Um, you can use a program called PhotoRec. It's inside of all of the repositories, and so just plug that Western Digital Drive into a laptop, spare laptop that you can let run for a while, and run PhotoRec on it, and I will give you a 99.9% .9 chance that you're going to get all those photos back. Now, they're not going to be named what they na that they were named, and they probably won't be in the same directory structure, but the photos themselves are almost certainly on that drive and almost certainly are recovered. Um, as far as where to move forward, yes, I like ZFS, and the last 30-some minutes spent with Chris Moore should exemplify why I am such a big fan of ZFS. And so, yes, if you have the opportunity to build your own FreeNAS box and function with FreeNAS and ZFS, then I would absolutely recommend you go that route. If you can't do that, the Synology is actually a very close second. Synology has made a name for itself um, in being a drop-in file server, and they do a fantastic job. And we use Synology all the time for, for everything from uh, surveillance systems. Their, their, their surveillance package is probably the best surveillance package out there, bar none. And we've also used them in the medical industry for DICOM storage. Um, and so I don't have any trouble uh, trusting my Synology. Of course, as with any storage device, I would want it backed up three different places or the data doesn't exist, probably and hopefully maybe a couple of more. Um, but they have it's a it's it's a very feature rich interface. It's running on Linux. It's a very stable system. They they pick sane file systems except for that little choice there in ButterFS, but leave that where it is. I would I would recommend you absolutely go full steam ahead with that DS918. The only thing you might want to do is you might consider rotating the drives and getting some new drives in there. Those are what's going to cost you data. And then again, long term, if you ever were going to do it from scratch, yes, I would recommend that you uh, you go uh, RAID Z2 and um, go ahead and build yourself a free NAS box.
Hey, the music, which is about to kick in, means that we are out of time and uh, we'll continue next week. Of course, you can find all of the articles and references that I mentioned in the show by going to podcast.asknoahshow.com. You heard about that Bluetooth adapter. You say, where can I pick myself up one of those? Well, we have it in the show notes. Also, we are asking for help with self. If you have some time to volunteer for the self-remote attendee functionality, we need people to admin. We need people to moderate. We need people to just be available. We need bodies. Um, we're trying to get Matrix and all those things spin up. And so if you have some free time and some availability, we'd love to have you send an email to volunteers at minddripmedia.com. We'll see you next week, 6 p.m. Tuesday, asknoahshow.com. Mm-hmm.